Central to this project, and a notion that obsesses me, is the complexity that can be discovered where one had not previously been aware of it. And what makes that idea even more exciting is when the complexity lies close at hand. Wood lies a close at hand. For anyone who's ever lifted a log or turned over a stone, the sight of these scuttling animals is a familiar thing. Wood lice, it might be said, are dreadfully run-of-the-mill, some of the least flashy creatures one might encounter in the garden. Wingless, grey, uninspiring. Their armour humps over their body in such a way that they lack much of an outline. They lack the evocative splay of a spider, or the curling, ever-changing calligraphy of a centipede. They lack the brilliant, glossy reds of ladybirds, the violet gleam of a ground beetle. Wood lice communiformed in dour greys and browns. The woodlouse has done a very good job of being familiar, unthreatening, and apparently uninteresting. What does the average person know about woodlice? Given pen and paper, could the average person come anywhere near filling a page? Probably most people could note the following in regard to woodlice. They're grey, brown, dull coloured. You find them under things in groups. They scatter when you find them. I think most people could draw a passable woodlouse. They'd probably get the segmented shell right. What beyond that is there to say about woodlice? Well, the fact is, surely the amount that can be known about woodlice, or about any animal, or about anything really, could fill an endless number of books. The glorious fact, the one that thrills me, is that though grey in groups, under logs, scatter, is the baseline for our understanding of woodlice, the amount that can be learned is vast, and the amount yet to be known is vaster still. In this episode, we lift the log, see the scatter, and then proceed further into the incredible undervalued depths of the humble woodlouse. Joining me to discuss woodlice is Eleanor Drinkwater, a scientist who's made extensive studies of these curious creatures. Hello Eleanor, how are you today? Hey, I'm really great, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. You are very welcome. I'm really excited to talk about woodlice. Um, woodlice being, in doing this project, I think there might be a sense that, oh, go on, go and seek out people that have studied dragonflies that live in a certain cave in a far-flung country, or go and seek out brightly coloured spiders or whatnot, but I'm quite excited to talk about woodlice, which are just a, a much more kind of everyman creature. So, yeah, <laughs> can't wait. Yeah, they're, yeah they're, they're just wonderful creatures. They are brilliant, wonderful, exciting creatures to study. So I hope you won't be disappointed. <laughs> I'm sure I won't. Um, and I'm, I'm pleased to hear they're exciting because uh, I suspect that, maybe this isn't the case, but people might tend to thinking of them as, as more dull creatures. But could we begin by, maybe you could just outline your your personal relationship and your professional relationship as well with invertebrate life certainly so i have i have always been completely fascinated by by creepy crawlies and bugs i just absolutely love the way that they live in such a different world to us and they just kind of perceive the world in such a different way i just find that totally fascinating and i've been fascinated by that ever since i've been a kid um but i've been lucky enough to kind of um, make a career out of it. And uh, so I've been lucky enough to study um, a lot of different bugs in the tropics. Um, but but most recently, I've just uh, been working on a PhD at the University of York, looking at a, a, a 
a range of different invertebrates, but mainly focused on um, woodlice, UK woodlice, um, a particular species called um, Aniscus ocellus, which is otherwise known as the shiny woodlice and uh, uh, shiny woodlouse. And um, yeah, so I've discovered, oh, it's been known that it is just an incredibly fascinating creature that I believe is very kind of underrated um, for many different reasons. Well, yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it being woodlice, which you've been focusing on, this is a creature that kind of around the world people have different names for, I guess, which sort of reflects the fact that it is quite a common creature in, in whatever guise it comes, slaters or pill bugs. But maybe just for the clarity, could you outline for us what exactly is a woodlouse? Yeah, so this is a this is a really good question. Um, people are always kind of surprised to discover that they're actually kind of well, they're crustaceans. So, so you know, they kind of largely fall in the group that you get kind of crabs and lobsters in more than being insects. So that that usually surprises people to start with. Um, so within um, crustacea, there are a lot of different kind of groups. Within that, you get a group called the isopods, which are just brilliant, weird creatures that are all a bit like woodlice, and a lot of them are very aquatic. However, one particular group within that, called Aniscidae, have adapted to life on land. And so that's where we find our wood lice. Um, so they're very kind of unusual in this adaptation. Many of their, their close relations are all totally aquatic. Um, some wood lice are kind of still are a bit aquatic, semi-aquatic, um, or live in kind of intertidal zones, all that kind of thing. Um, but the majority of them have adapted to life on land. Um, and which is so exciting because it allows us to look at different kind of physiological adaptations to living on land as an aquatic animal, as well as a lot of really fascinating behavioral adaptations to allow them this kind of transition. So they're a very kind of interesting, kind of weird group in this kind of recent uh, movement onto land. These being crustaceans, but living on the land, presumably, I mean, they're living in an environment that most crustaceans don't. Are there any challenges that woodlice have to to overcome, which might not be faced by other arthropods? Yes, definitely. So the big challenge for woodlice is drying out. That is a massive, massive challenge for woodlice. Um, And in fact, it's something that has kind of really shaped a a lot of what woodlice do and how they've they've adapted. Um, So... If, if a woodlouse is left out in the open, it very rapidly kind of dries out and then and then unfortunately dies. And so this is the, the main reason why you get these beautiful aggregations. If you tip over a stone or something like that and you get all of these woodlice together, it's actually an adaptation in order to try and help themselves kind of stay, stay moist. Um, so that's in the kind of temperate areas where you get those kind of big aggregations in kind of desert areas, on, on the other hand, um, that's not a very good ad- adaptation because it's just so hot and they need other adaptations to uh, stop them from um, drying out. And so actually in those areas, they have um, adapted their behavior into forming kind of monogamous pair bonds and they work together in monogamous pairs in which they will kind of build nests and build tunnels in order to kind of protect themselves from the heat. So in different environments, they all have this problem that they're very susceptible to drying out, but they've adapted different kind of behavioural responses in order to kind of counteract that, which is just amazing. This may seem like a, a kind of silly question. When you say drying out, what exactly do you mean by that? So essentially... So if you look at um, a woodlouse, so, so it's kind of upper side is kind of kind of hard kind of scales. They can still lose water from that, um, but they also lose a lot of water from their kind of kind of soft kind of underside. They lose a lot of water. Um, and 
so so essentially they they lose too much water some of it comes out of their their hemolymph and eventually they just don't have enough water in their body to kind of survive um the importance of water to them is shown by the fact that they actually have two sets of antennae so they have the really big set antennae that you can kind of see really easily and then they've actually got a really small set of antennae underneath it um so the big set of antennae kind of pick up on lots of um chemical cues you know about you know where where it's wet where there might be food you know all kinds of things like that but those big antennae can get lost quite easily you know if you've been handling them roughly you'll see that they kind of come off um but the ones underneath actually are just about finding water um, so it kind of shows the fact that they've kind of got a redundant system in place to help them find water, even if they've lost their main antenna. It kind of goes to show how important it is for these little creatures to kind of seek out water. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned their kind of forming pair bonds, which I mean, immediately my instinct about these animals is that even as someone, you know, I'm enthusiastic about invertebrates and things. And I think I think woodlice are great and I think they're exciting and interesting and charming. But already, you know, I had I had no idea about these behaviours. And but the one thing that always compels me about them is that when you kind of upturn a log or a stone or something, and woodlice are scuttling about, as as a matter of course, they come in groups. You find them in aggregations. You know, as a layperson, you look and you think, oh, there's a a family of woodlice or a colony of woodlice. I don't know what kind of word you'd put to it. What I wondered was, are these are these social creatures? Are they living any kind of social life? This is a really, 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 really great question. I, and it's actually a much trickier question to answer than you might think. Because the, the reason being is because they 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 are kind of social. As you say, they come in these social groups. Um, but it, they don't appear to form kind of um, social networks per se. Um, so something like a, um, a colony of ants or something has a very kind of complicated um, structure in which um, these individuals will interact with these individuals. And, you know, it's a very kind of complex kind of structure within woodlice. On the other hand, it doesn't appear to be any kind of social structure. They don't appear to have a social hierarchy. Um, they they don't appear to show any kind of um, preference for, for neighbours or, or preference for individuals. So kind of in 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 layman's terms almost, they're, they're social, but they, they don't necessarily have any particular friends, if that makes sense. So, so for me, it's a kind of a very interesting form of, of sociality in that it's kind of, they form aggregations, but not necessarily kind of the social structure within them, which makes them a really interesting study system, in my opinion. Having explored the notion of sociality a bit, and before we leap into some of the more complicated notions of personality and consciousness and whatnot, let's explore the tangible immediate world of the woodlouse, or rather woodlice, for the woodlouse isn't a single species, but a group, the Aniscidae, within the isopods, within the crustaceans. As a side note, and on a sort of woodlouse-related tangent, do make sure you look up giant isopods if you fancy freaking you nut a bit. Let's learn a bit about the diversity that exists within the Aniscidae, and find out about some of the woodlice we can meet on our travels. The fun thing about the UK is that we have so many different species of woodlice and a lot of them, even though they look really similar, have very different like um, adaptations. So uh, largely dependent on um, how they've adapted to. Some of them are kind of more waterproof, as it were, than others. So they lose water less less easily. So, for example, the, the ones that kind of roll up. So they tend to be um, in a group called armadillium. And um, they're interesting because they're, they're kind of harder. And so they, they dry out less easily and so they as a result they tend to be much more active during the daytime whereas other ones like the kind of 
shiny or rough wood lice, which are the ones you find under rocks, they kind of, you know, have these aggregations and everything going on. But even between the two of them, though they look quite similar, they have very different behaviors themselves. So so that's one of the fascinating things that, you know, it might be the case that they all look the same and, and grey, but actually within them, you have all these amazing different groups, which all are doing completely different things. So I definitely recommend um, looking up some of the different kind of species and uh, seeing if you can tell the difference between them. That's fantastic. I mean, you've, do you know what, you've actually sort of reassured me slightly there when you said that there's a, that, that this, this rolling up behaviour is, is a specific thing, because people have always told me about this rolling up behaviour. I've never seen it. I've, <laughs> I, and I thought people were sort of, on the wind up or it was just an urban myth or something but this is happening it's just not in the wood lice that maybe i've seen knocking about so so most of the wood lice that are in the uk are kind of either the rough wood lice or the shiny wood lice and the easy way to tell them apart is the rough wood lice are kind of a bit bobbly and the shiny wood lice they tend to be a bit bigger but also they're not bobbly so that's the kind of a very easy way to tell them apart there's also slight differences of their antennae but uh, i would recommend just looking for their kind of shininess or bobbliness and so they're the kind of two most common ones um yeah, but between the, the the two of them, the uh, the shiny wood lice kind of loses water a little bit easier than the, the 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 rough wood lice, which mean that they have slightly different kind of patterns of behaviour. Despite the fact that you kind of see them in these kind of interspecies groups, which again is another kind of fascinating thing. I sort of came back to as as a little kid, I liked insects and invertebrates and things, and then at a much older age, I, ca- I came back and I got into ants specifically and kind of started learning about ants. And learned about the antwood louse, a creature that, you know, a, a wood louse that, that lives exclusively in the company of ants. And all these bizarre behaviours that you can find in this in a group that, as I've said, you might think of as quite a humdrum sort of little grey creature. Yeah, those are those are really cool little creatures. I I think I've only seen them once and it was a very, very exciting experience. But yeah, yeah, they got, <laughs> yeah, as you're saying, you know, we have... A, and a lot of them we, we don't see, you know, there's ones that are we're going to see more, more often, but then other ones like that, as you say, which are going to see less often, you know, so, but despite that, we do have some really interesting species. Um, yeah, I, I, another fun thing to, to kind of look out for when you're looking for wood lice is uh, um, a, a kind of a way to split them up as well is yeah. that you have kind of um, sprinters or clampers. That's, that's another thing. So, so some species of wood lice, if you poke them, they kind of clamp down and they try and stop you from kind of picking them up. And then other ones, if you poke them, they'll kind of run away. And they, which is another way of kind of separating species on, on their behavior. So that's a, another quite fun thing. If you find wood lice, give it a poke and see if it's a sprinter or a clamper. The idea that we can sort wood lice into informal categories, sprinters and clampers, those that flee and those that hunker down, is an interesting one. In addition to these two informal categories, we can add rollers, those that ball up when startled. Some visions of wood lice categorisation add two further groups, though neither is quite as pleasing. Those two categories are spiny forms and non-conformists. In the short paper, Names for Terrestrial Isopods in Japan, Toro Undagawa demonstrates that these informal categories are also observed in Japan, with their own lovely evocative names. The runners, or sprinters, are known as Funamusi. Funa is a boat or a ship. Musi is a bug. The clingers are Warazi Musi, roughly sandal bug or shoe bug, and the rollers are Dangle Musi, something like dumpling bug. Boat, sandal, dumpling, lovely. And all with logic. Rollers, dumpling bugs, on being frightened, assume the form of a dumpling. Clingers, sandal bugs, grip with their feet. The boat bug, Undergawa tells us, a runner as we might call it, were associated with a seaside. A Japanese dictionary noting that they're often found running across the decks of boats. The ubiquity of the woodlouse, the regularity with which we can counter it, is suggested by the overwhelming number of familiar names that they hold, or have held, even within the English-speaking world. 
Woodlice, pillbugs, slaters, roly-polies, cheesy bugs, chisel bobs, wood pigs, monkey peas. The names which have been historically given to woodlice can be organised into a number of subcategories, suggestive of the cultural associations we attach to them. Woodlouse is the name which has stuck, at least in my experience, but a great many other colloquial terms for woodlice refer to wood and carpentry, probably owing to the woodlouse's tendency to living under logs and among rotting wood. Bouncing off the wood association, we have names like carpenter's flea, woodbug, boat builders and wood pig. Wood pig's a lovely one, because we can then jump into another category of colloquial woodlice names, pig names. Is it the faintly rotund form, the curvature of the woodlouse, that gives it a piggy association? I'm not sure, but for whatever reason, woodlice have historically gained names like chuggy pig, sow pig, pig louse, tiddy hog, grandpa pig and grandma sow. Fuzzy pig, another colloquial woodlouse name, might well not refer to a pig as in a pig pig pig. Instead, fuzzy pig comes second hand from another animal already named after a pig. That is, a hedgehog, an animal which rolls itself up when threatened, fuzzy with spikes. If you're listening and English isn't your first language, I'd love to know how you refer to woodlice and how your term for woodlice translates. I'd also love to know if there's any colloquial terms in your country, so do write in. One thing you've been looking at is the notion of personality in woodlice. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is a fascinating idea. I've been reading um, a book by, what's his name? Peter Godfrey Smith about the minds of animals and about how animals, whether they have a consciousness and things like this. And one thing that occurs to me a lot in reading these books and in thinking about animals is that perhaps our understanding of them is actually limited by the language we use. So this idea that personality has been central to your study really interested me because, you know, personality is quite a it's hard not to think of it in sort of human terms or in terms that might seem like a reflection of of what being a human is. And I wondered sort of, how do you define what you mean by personality? So so that's that's a very good point. And in fact, um, there's been a lot of criticism within the field or concern within the fields that a term like personality is, is too human to apply to animals, especially as when we're talking about animal personality, we're talking about something that's quite different to human personality. When we talk about human personality, you know, you instantly think of, you know, whether or not people have hobbies or or, or what mm. TV show they like watching or, or, you know, kind of a lot of very kind of complex uh, ideas when it comes to personality. With animals, um, we kind of just apply the term to mean kind of consistent individual differences. So, so consistent differences between the individuals of one species, which are consistent over time and context. So that would mean something like, If you have a mouse, for example, which is a very shy creature, it will um, be shy consistently throughout its life or or throughout the period of time that you're measuring it. And, you know, if the conditions in the environment change, the mouse will consistently be shy across the kind of changing environment. So that's kind of what we mean by animal personality. It's a good question as to whether it is, you know, the, the right term to apply to things like invertebrates because we are talking about something very different to to human personality. Um, I personally quite like the term because um, I feel like it kind of is quite engaging and it kind of gets people interested. Um, but it does have to be used with caution because we're not talking about human personality um, in in these terms. We're just talking about kind of simple differences in behaviour that are kind of consistent over time. I see. Yeah, I mean, when I when I mention this idea of language, I'm, I'm by no means trying to frame it as a criticism. I suppose oh, yeah, what no. I mean is, is that 
I sometimes wonder if our, not just, we'll, we'll get onto this in a second maybe, but if our capacity to study animals and to understand them is is limited not by by a lack of something on their part, but on a lack of an ability for us to recognise that thing. Let, let's, t- let's talk more closely about what you've been studying then. So what does studying the personality or kind of trying to ascertain the, the personality in woodlice, what has your study involved? Uh, so, so you can look at personality. The, the main thing about personality is you choose something which is appropriate to your study system. And so for something like woodlice, um, a lot of what we've been doing is looking at kind of variation in activity levels. This is a kind of um, a study a way of studying personality, which is kind of quite common among across invertebrates. So yeah, so we've been looking at how different individuals um, may vary in their um, yeah, individual activity level and how this is kind of consistent over time. This is a really interesting, um, in my opinion, because it, it's, a, it's a very simple way of looking at some really, really fascinating questions like, you know, why, why do... Um, animals have personalities what is the use of personality you know why does something like a woodlouse bother to evolve a personality which is kind of a really kind of central and kind of really fascinating question um and there are lots of different hypotheses to explain this um so so a a big one that's very popular among birds is the kind of live fast die young hypothesis which is um that different individuals might take more risks and then die early or other individuals would be kind of more shy and um have more babies but have less kind of reproductive opportunities another theory behind it is um a social niche hypothesis so the idea that you're living in a social environment so you've kind of got to develop a different personality so you will occupy different social niches um so so essentially we still don't really understand which or, or how or why these kind of personalities have evolved and therefore kind of using an animal like a woodlouse that has social behaviors but without a kind of complex social system you can kind of become to unpick the kind of personality versus the kind of social network thing which just makes them a, a wonderful study system fantastic well in in looking at these ideas with the woodlouse what have you been able to learn about them? So, so one of the interesting things is, well, first of all, the fact that they do have personality, which is really interesting that you get this, yeah, that you get personality in the absence of kind of complicated um, social networks, which is a really interesting kind of finding in itself. Um, so, you know, it, that instantly kind of suggests that within woodlice anyway, um, you have the evolution of personality in the absence of um, kind of social complex social bonds which suggests that it doesn't fit the 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 social niche hypotheses in this particular species anyway which is a kind of you know a really exciting uh finding itself um so yeah so just the fact that they have this kind of personality and the fact that this evolves and is still important to them despite not being in a social setting is a kind of a really interesting um finding in my opinion the apparent kind of swarming tendencies of creatures like this can kind of compromise our sense of what it means to be an individual. So the idea that these animals are differing on an individual basis, I don't know, maybe it's confirmation bias, but I, I, I like that we can say that about the world. I wondered, looking at kind of how these animals are differing from, from individual to individual and thinking about personality in kind of a critical sense, one thing I've been asking people is, you know, does does studying animal life closely and trying to kind of untangle and derive 
find patterns and meaning in the lives of animals. Does it kind of reflect back on you and does it cause you to think critically about yourself? And I wondered if in kind of trying to, to study these creatures, does it ever give you pause for thought about kind of about p- the people around you? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'd say I'd say it does. Um, I'd say for me, studying bugs, um, and I, I guess I've already kind of slightly touched touched on that before. But I think it's a kind of an appreciation that you have of so many different kind of incredible creatures, which are kind of very much in plain sight. But the more you begin to kind of dig into them, the more kind of fascinating you find them to be. Um, like, you know, just some kind of weird things, like um, woodlice can tolerate a higher concentration of heavy metals in their tissues than any other known animal. Um, or the, the fact that they will um, synchronise their, their breeding patterns. And so all of the w- female woodlice in the group will have their babies at the same time and we still don't really understand how they manage to do that and kind of so many other like really fascinating very kind of alien adaptations in an animal that we know so well it kind of really makes me kind of really appreciate the fact that we know so little about um our environment and that the fact that there's so much kind of going on that we don't understand so in a way it kind of i really enjoy the study of of you know really common invertebrates like this as it kind of helps me to kind of uh I don't know, feel quite small in the universe, as it were. I think as as humans, it's very easy for us to kind of um, think that we're, um, you know, kind of in charge or kind of we know what's going on. But actually, once you start digging into it, there's so much we still don't know. And we're kind of very much, you know, scratching the surface of, of knowledge still after all these years. And I just I just find that a kind of a very exciting uh, place to be, if that makes sense. It, it absolutely makes sense. I think you've hit the nail on the head. And what I find interesting about these animals, it sounds like, this might be the same for you, don't want to put words in your mouth, is that they are a common animal. They are not unusual. We are familiar with them. And yet there is a, a depth of knowledge that can be attained about that creature, which we which we haven't even scratched the surface of. And it, it kind of, it speaks to the, the world more broadly in that you can look at, you know, there are things all around us that we haven't, you know, I, I don't know very much about um, ivy, but I dare say there's a great deal to be learned about ivy. If, if you choose to kind of focus on that thing. I mean, with with the, so so with woodlouse, uh, woodlice, compared to kind of how you felt about woodlice before you began your study, if you were to lift a stone now and, and, and find woodlice underneath the way you might have when you were little or something, do you think that what you kind of, what you see when you look at a, a congregation of woodlice has changed since you started learning about these animals? Oh, yes, definitely. It's, a kind of um there was a wonderful book that was published a kids book um it was done by the bbc years ago it's called alien planet um and in it it kind of points out the fact that invertebrates are kind of very much like kind of aliens living on our planet almost and i kind of feel like that like knowing a little bit more about woodlice and knowing just how kind of weird and bizarre their 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 lives are it kind of you know, it gets me even more excited when I kind of flip over a rock and kind of see these see these creatures. And, you know, suddenly you start thinking, you start wondering about, um, like, oh, there's so many different fascinating things. Like there's a um, bacteria called Wolbachia, which 
will infect um, the wood lice. And as it can only be passed through females, it will feminize the males. And so you will end up with a whole aggregation of just females in order for this bacteria to to kind of reproduce. And so, you know, like, so once you start kind of knowing bits and pieces like that, you kind of start looking at these aggregations and you're like, oh, I wonder if they're infected. You know, I wonder if, you know, what the, the female male proportions are. You know, I wonder, you know, how they're, the, what they're feeding on at the moment. You know, there's just so many kind of, there's a real depth to these animals' lives that um, I, I really didn't appreciate before studying them in, in more detail. Let, let, should, we, should we backpedal really, really hard and sort of answer a question that I probably should have asked at the start? Eleanor, what do they eat? Oh, so, <laughs> that's a great question. So, um, well, in, in reality, they eat all kinds of things. So, so, you know, they will eat kind of fungus and they will eat, you know, pretty much anything they can find. Um, in, the, in the lab, we feed them potato. They really like potato and fish flakes is the best thing. If you're, if you're ever keeping them as, as pets, I would recommend <laughs> potato and fish flakes um, because they, they need to have kind of something that's quite kind of hard, carb heavy, which in the wild could be, you know, kind of rotting things or or, and a little bit of protein as well, so that so they'll have both of those those things. So yeah, so that, that is a good question. I've learned something interesting about wood lice. I'll tell you it by way of some theology. In the Woodlouse Sermon, Martin Thornton, an Anglican priest, writes of the woodlouse as a charming creature. He writes how a disturbed colony of woodlice flees when disturbed. Some, he writes, attempt to flight into the wilderness, whilst others group themselves, seeking protection in numbers. Those who roll themselves into a ball, he says, do so for protection against predators, yet seemingly accepting martyrdom with uncomplaining fortitude. He contrasts the behaviour of startled woodlice with the behaviour of a disturbed ant colony, which degenerates into a solid mass of feverish activity which gets the ants nowhere. Loyal to the system but utterly incapable of personal initiative, an ant never comes up with an original idea. Thornton, tongue firmly in cheek I think, sees the woodlouse as a creature of fortitude and moral good. Or rather, he foists his understanding of that which is good and bad onto the woodlouse and the ant. I simplify, I'm sure. Sorry, Martin. Woodlice have got it all, Thornton writes. Community interplay, creative dialogue, yet always capable of going in search of the wilderness, of running a risk and taking a chance, even to the extent of rolling themselves into little balls, hoping for the best and willing to cope with the worst. Whether or not we see community interplay in woodlice is a much more contentious matter, one for Eleanor. But I like Thornton's appreciation of the woodlouse, even if I am appalled by his wanton condemnation of the ant. But here's my interesting fact, and a fact that appeals to Thornton too, as we'll see. Living things need to excrete waste, for example, nitrogen, which is often done through urination or some rough similar corresponding process. They do not urinate, but instead expel nitrogen in the form of ammonia gas. Now, ammonia is a chemical of great import when it comes to fertilising plants. It's this that Martin Thornton latches onto in one of the, to me, more bizarre aspects of his Woodlouse sermon, in which he suggests the Woodlouse as a creature through which we might contemplate the notion of the Christian Trinity. He writes, Biologically speaking, a Woodlouse looks as if it has a family resemblance with a beetle or a centipede or some similar creature. Its nearest relation, believe it or not, is a lobster. A further characteristic of a Woodlouse is that its bodily waste products are converted into ammonia, and exhales as a gas through its whole body. What is called sulphate of ammonia in agriculture is a basic nitrogenous fertiliser, supplying the most elemental and essential plant nutrient. So the gaseous exhalation from the woodlouse into the atmosphere unleashes nitrogen, which sustains the vegetable kingdom and maintains soil fertility upon which all earthly life depends. 
Is it going too far to think of God the Father Lobster, the woodlouse incarnate, and the all-pervading, imminent, life-giving spirit of ammonia nitrogenous gas, which, or rather who, proceeds from them? In other words, in other words, in other words, for Thornton, one can view the wood. Thornton's analogy is a strange one. For any biblically inclined listeners, perhaps there is insight, hopefully not heresy, in this. Lobster the father, woodlouse the son, ammonia the Holy Spirit. Um, these, these woodlice, our, our ability to understand how another living thing experiences the world is 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 very odd and very restricted and, and difficult I guess and I'm sure that you've sort of there would have been challenges in your study and investigating this idea is, is a strange one and I wonder if are there any questions that you would like to answer that you just don't feel we have the capacity to answer at the moment I would say yes there are so 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 many questions that we just don't know the answer to you know as I said before we're still like you know scratching just scratching the surface and there's just so much I think one of the problems about invertebrates um is the fact that they're so different to us and their chemical pathways are very different to us the way that their kind of neural systems work is so completely different to us it's so hard to know like the kind of depths of the cognitive capacity of a lot of invertebrates and kind of pretty much you know almost every week there are new studies which are coming out that are kind of describing things about invertebrates that kind of really call into question our assumptions about their cognition like um there was a lovely study that came out earlier this year which showed tool use in ants and that's a kind of really higher level kind of cognitive um, skill that is just kind of really remarkable in these invertebrates. Or there's been a lot of amazing work coming out on bumblebees, which has been showing that kind of bumblebees can be trained to kind of perform tricks, but also able to make kind of quite high level kind of cognitive jumps between, um, you know, different things, which again is kind of quite kind of surprising. So I, I reckon that this is a, a really exciting time for entomology, that, that you're kind of getting these kind of little clues at the moment about these different invertebrates having a much more kind of complex cognition than you think they do. Um, and I'm just really excited to see what's going to happen in the next kind of 10 or 20 years about what other pieces of information are going to come out about invertebrate cognition. I'm, I'm not saying that that woodlice are, are, are have high higher level cognitive uh, thoughts but I think there's there's so much we don't know about invertebrate cognition that I think that the next few years are going to bring some really interesting discoveries about you know how how they I don't know I, I even struggle to say the word think um, because I think within invertebrates it's kind of you know kind of complicated but how they perceive the world and and kind of what level of cognition some of these invertebrates might have um, so so yeah I think it's a really exciting time to be kind of understanding that um, the limits and or, or the kind of limit breaking um which we see in some kind of invertebrate behavior i think that's a wonderful answer and, and whether you yeah whether the woodlouse has a greater degree of cognition that we are unable to perceive yet it, it's certainly as you've said there's a lot about woodlice still to learn and that's going to be an exciting thing going forward so i'd encourage anyone um, to go and have a look at some woodlice and, and have a laugh thinking about how class woodlice are <laughs> I genuinely feel quite excited about woodlice now. I want to go and and explore. I mean, obviously, I'm currently locked down in a in a second floor flat, so it might be a bit challenging. But we'll give it, give it a crack as soon as possible. 
<laughs> yeah, I think yeah, they're they're, they're they're wonderful. Um, oh man, I could talk about them forever. They're they're, they're you know, <laughs> they're just absolutely fascinating creatures. That I feel like they definitely need more airtime because there's just so much going on in their their wonderful little aggregations, you know. And I, I think in in the coming years, you know, there'll be still more stuff that we're going to discover about them. So yes, keep posted. Woodlice are great. <laughs> well, you know, following on from your enthusiasm, perhaps someone listens to this one day and. It sparks an interest and there begins a whole a life dedicated to woodlice that can be our hope <laughs> well, actually well everyone should be dedicated to woodlice but well, you know, I'm, a, I'm a bit biased obviously <laughs> well I'll thank you for your dedication um yeah thank you so much for speaking to me Eleanor um it's been been really lovely thank you oh, brilliant well thank you so much for having me it's been a joy to talk about woodlice always is <laughs> yes, thank you so much bye now bye thank you so much again to Eleanor for joining me to discuss woodlice woodlice which is so much more than they might first appear. This, as I've said, is true of all things, and I fervently believe it, but all things possess a degree of complexity which in a thousand lifetimes one could not fully untangle, and all things are worthy of examination and consideration. The woodlouse, dull and unassuming, is a potent symbol of this. I'll leave you, then, to turn over a rock, to grub in the filth, and to appreciate our scamperous mates, the woodlice. I'll leave you to question, could louse? Should louse, will louse, can louse, but most of all, would louse. Grubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hutton. My thanks to Eleanor Drinkwater for enthusiasm and expertise. If social media is a rotten log, hide beneath it with me. On Instagram, it's at Grubbing in the Filth, and on Twitter, it's at GITF Podcast. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. Until next time, in the name of the lobster, the woodlouse, and the ammonia, I bless you. Bye.